Let's continue that prayer for just a minute. Lord Jesus, everything we were just singing is true. It's true of you that if we were to add all the radiance and glory and beauty and splendor and vitality in all the universe, it would not outshine you. And because you, along with your Father and the Holy Spirit, made it all. And you care for it, and you're redeeming it all. Lord, draw near to us today. Um, we have forgotten how radiant you are. We have forgotten to see hints of your glory in the blue sky and the beautiful fall leaves. We have forgotten to see every bite we take of every meal as a sign of your faithfulness to care for us. We have forgotten much. You're gracious and patient with those who need to learn. So would you teach us again? Lord, some of us today need to learn for the first time who you are. Teach patiently, persuade, draw men and women and boys and girls to yourself for the first time. Some of us have drawn near before, but have stepped away, and we need our trust in you to be rekindled, light a fire. And some of us are trying to walk faithfully with you, but challenges crop up and make us stumble. Give us strength. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So we've been uh, walking through a series of psalms and talking recently about what it means to live as whole people, people who are designed not only for thinking and for doing things, but for delighting in things. And, and whole people combine all of those aspects of what it means to be human, head, hands, and heart. So we've been using this little image to help us, right? Sometimes we become all head. Sometimes we become all heart. Sometimes we become all hands and feet. But if we're growing as whole people, then we are thinking in sound ways, and we are doing things that are loving and gracious and life-giving for everyone around us. And at the same time, we are learning to delight in things that really are good and beautiful and true and glorious. And the Christian faith teaches us that all of those aspects of who we are as human beings should be governed by the mercy and grace that come to us through Jesus so that we think what he tells us is true and we do what he tells us is loving. And we learn more and more to delight in him. As Westerners, we often forget that third piece. Westerners, we tend to get really wrapped up in the thinking if we're analysts or the doing if we're activists. 
But we want to be whole people, learning, learning to become healthy in head, hands, and heart. Today we're looking at Psalm 27, and it speaks about that kind of wholeness, having that kind of wholeness on a dark day, what verse 5 of the psalm is going to call a day of trouble. And you'll hear language running throughout this psalm as we read it. So in a few minutes, we're going to have Peter and Donna read it together. They're kind of going to take different roles because you'll hear there's some different emphases in the psalm. One of these has to do with this kind of theme of fear because it's a day of trouble. You'll hear about evildoers and adversaries and enemies. There will be a comparison to, um, you know, this day of trouble is like, it's like being invaded by a, a conquering army or like being devoured by wild beasts. And you'll hear this hint toward the end of the psalm of very deep pain being betray- betrayed by my father and my mother. And uh, at the same time, you're going to hear this theme of promise that on the day of trouble, your heart can be strong and find courage. You're going to hear bold declarations, my heart shall not fear. You'll hear this pattern described of um, my enemies will fall, but the Lord will raise me up. And toward the end of the psalm, this confidence that no matter, no matter how bad the day of trouble gets, one day I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. And that takes us to some really important questions. How can real human hearts be strong like that? What makes it possible to have that kind of confidence and courage on a dark day? Before we hear the psalm read, we're going to hear a short testimony uh, through video from Brian and Cindy Terrell, uh, folks who have been members here at InTown for many years. They're going to talk to us about learning to delight in God in good times, and you'll hear how they're learning to delight in God in darker days as well. We are Brian and Cindy Terrell. Uh, We've been a part of In-Town Community Church from the very beginning, uh, 30 plus years, I guess. We raised our family here, four children. They're all married. We just had our ninth grandchild. So yeah, this is our home. We just recently had our, uh, a new grandbaby born. And it made me think about God's character. I had to, separate his gifts from who he is. And and um, that's kind of hard to do because we always delight in his gifts. I was delighted in meeting a new grandson and it was just beautiful to experience that uh, sense of delighting in God in the midst of in delighting in his gifts. I learned to delight in the Lord. Um, If this may sound strange, but it's mostly through uh, darker times, painful times. That led me to read a lot uh, related to 
my own heart, God's heart, and the heart of Jesus, and how he interacted with people. Um, and it just gave me much more fascination, awe, wonder, pleasure, delight in who he is as a person. When I allow myself to sit in sorrow and grieve and feel loss, um, those are hard, hard times. And in that, he is taking me through from, you know, one step at a time. And I think that is when my heart has caught up with my head and my hands the most. It opens up a way to love him more and to love others more and also to receive his love for me. As I delight in him and he delights in me and I spend time in community seeing others doing the same, my delight in God just is enlarged. What it means to me to delight in the Lord is to remember that He delights in me. And once I'm in touch with how He takes pleasure in me and I can let go of my expectations for myself, my expectations for God, and really rest in His pleasure over me, that's the sweetest taste of delighting in God. Good morning. Our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my, the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. You who have helped me, or you who have been mine help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O oh God, my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord 
will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a path, a level path, because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We live in a world where um, the day of trouble comes. That's not true just of Christians. (laughs) That's true of every human being. We all know what it is to endure the day of trouble. And we need to know... Oops. There we go. We need to know a goodness that's strong enough to overpower evil in that day of trouble. We need to know and be able to delight in a kind of beauty that outshines the darkness. That true is, is, too is not something that's just true of Christians. This is just something that Christian people say when we get together. Right? This is true of every person on this whole planet. Every one of us knows that we need this. We, we need to know a goodness that is strong enough to overpower the evil. Otherwise, what do you do on the day of trouble? What do you do on the day of trouble if, if there is goodness, but it's too weak to overcome evil? Your only option is to despair. What do you do on the day of trouble if you find out that goodness and beauty are just ideas we've made up? They don't really exist. If the day of trouble is is on you and everything you're putting your hope in for deliverance in that day turns out just to be kind of a mass hallucination, what do you do? What do you do on the day of trouble if you suddenly discover that there actually is no difference between good and evil? Therefore, what you think is a day of trouble isn't. You interpret it as evil, as darkness, as hard and harmful, but actually it's just reality because there is no good and there is no evil. No human being can actually live that way. The heart of every person cries out in every moment of need that we need to know a goodness that is strong enough to overpower evil. We need to know that there's a beauty in this world that we can truly delight in and that in the end it will outshine all the darkness. We want to believe that real courage on the day of trouble on the day of evil, on the day of darkness, is possible. There's no basis for believing that unless this goodness and this beauty actually exist. 
And if this goodness and beauty can be known by us, and if it is so good and so beautiful that we can completely delight in it, so that on the day of trouble we aren't kind of giving half of our heart to what is good and beautiful. If there is goodness like that that actually exists and can be known, then we can find strength on the day of trouble. Of course, what this psalm writer is telling us, moved by, by God to say it, and to say it out loud, and to say it publicly, and to say it in a song that can be sung in worship, is that all of these things are found in the God who has made himself known. Right? Look at verse 1 again. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I? There is a God who has made himself known. He is light. He can overpower the darkness. He is salvation. He can overcome the evil and the trouble. He is the stronghold. Never knew what a stronghold was until I visited a place in Israel called Masada. It's this um, cliff-top fortress, several hundred feet above the valley below, and um, nearly impossible to, uh, to overcome and overtake. The Lord is a stronghold. Verse 4 says that we can gaze on the beauty of the Lord. That not only is He real, (laughs) and not only has He made Himself known, but what we find in Him is something we can delight in. And of course the psalm ends on that same note of confidence as Donna read for us. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. There is a goodness that will outlast all the evil. And he will give us the gift of life in the land of the living forever. Therefore, verse 14, it's the Lord we need to be waiting for. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. We need to know this kind of goodness. And we can know this kind of goodness. Why? We can know the God whose goodness overpowers evil. We can know the God whose beauty outshines all the darkness because he has made himself known. And we have to take a step back here because there's a a phrase in this psalm that um, could trip us up. It could make us stumble. It's in verse 13. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord. We are not at a college football game, and it is not overtime. Right? You know the saying that flashes up on the scoreboard? You just got to believe. Right? Well, I just got to believe that I'll look on the goodness of the Lord. I don't know if I will. I have no idea who's going to win this game. I don't. Hey, I, I, I just got to believe something. Here's what I believe. Whoever has the most points at the end of this overtime will win. That's what I believe. Right? There's a sense in, in our culture that, that believing is choosing to trust in something even though there's no good reason to think it's real. You just got to believe. 
There's no good reason to think that your team is going to outlast the other team. There's no good reason to say you can predict who's going to score more points. But you just got to believe because in our culture, there's this thing called modernism. And you might say, but wait a minute. Um, only people who wear bow ties think that's still relevant because this is a postmodern world. Yeah, I know. But trust me, modernism's still around. It's the way we understand language about faith and belief because we've been taught by modernism to separate mind and heart. We've been taught to separate knowing from believing. We've been taught we live in a two-story universe Facts on the bottom story and values in the top story, and you can't move between stories. You can know facts, you can do science, you can do history, you can know reality. And if you want to believe some values, some truths that are bigger than facts, you can believe that, but there is no good reason for believing it. You just got to believe that is not what the Bible means when it talks about believing. That is not what the Bible means when it talks about faith. And so we have to leave the stadium. We're not at a football game. Not that kind of believing. It's not, oh, I just have to believe that one day I'll look on the goodness of the Lord, even though there's no good reason to think that's true. No, it is. I am going to believe that. Because God has made himself known. He really exists. And he is knowable. And he has made himself known in such a way that we can see that he really is this good. That the thought that seeing the goodness of the Lord could give me life forever in the land of the living, that's a real thing, not a make-believe fairy tale. And the notion of gazing on the beauty of the Lord, being able to give me strength in the here and now on the day of trouble. That's a real thing. It's something we believe not because there's no good reason to believe it, but because this God has made himself known. He is knowable. He's done that in history. If you look at a, a Bible and the, the way it prints the name of the Lord in this psalm, like in verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Uh, and then again in verse 4, one thing have I asked of the Lord. You would notice that it's, it's in all capital letters or what, you know, Microsoft Word would call small caps, right? It's not printed normally. That's a way of reflecting that the Hebrew text here uses the name Yahweh. This is not generic God. This is God who has made himself known in history by calling to himself a people, starting with Abraham, the nation of Israel, and saying, I will make myself known to you. I will tell you my own name. This is my name? You're not knowing some generic abstract idea or force. 
But as, as you heard Brian say in the video, you can know God as a person, not a human person, but as a real personal being who actually exists and can be known and with whom human beings can have a real relationship. And he says, here's my name. Call me by this name. Now, the Jewish people began to have such reverence and awe for that name that they hesitated to pronounce it out loud. And so um, whenever the text would say Yahweh in Hebrew, they would instead say the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And that's where we get our custom in our English Bibles of putting this word Lord written in a special way. This is the God who's made himself known in history. This is the God who made himself known in the first century in a little town called Bethlehem where he took on human flesh and blood. This is the God who made himself known in crucifixion and resurrection in Christ. Our world tells us to separate these things. Our world tells us that you can't move from fact to truth, that you can't move from cold, hard facts of reality to declaring that those facts really are beautiful and good. You can choose to believe that they're good or beautiful, but you have imposed that on them because all we can really know is the cold, hard facts of reality. But God's existence shatters that modern paradigm and says, I want to make you whole people. I want, to, I want to obliterate that distinction between these two stories of the universe. You really can know someone who is good and someone who is beautiful. And that can give you confidence in the day of darkness because he makes himself known in real life, in a real world. It's a world where fear and trust live side by side. You know that kind of world. And God makes himself known in that world. I had an interesting experience this week. I was reading, a, as one does when getting ready to preach on a psalm, reading a commentary about the psalms. This is one of these big, thick guys, like over a thousand pages there's 150 psalms, so it takes a while to dig deeply into each one. It's written by a team of three authors, one of whom is named Rolf Jacobson. And it's part of a series that's, um, it is intentionally more academic and intellectual in its bent. Now, be good modernist for a moment. I just said academic and intellectual, so which side of this spectrum are we on? This is a commentary that deals with the mind, not the heart. It deals with knowing. Talks a bit about believing. But it's more interested in the academic side than the spiritual side. Fair enough, that's what I need it to do. That's, that's kind of what I need this commentary for. What surprised me was Rolf Jacobson taking a moment to say, can I, can I get personal here? He kind of had to apologize for it because he knows he's writing in a series that's more academic than personal. And he says, 
this psalm is the reason I began to be interested in studying the psalms. This is what started me on the path of becoming a scholar who digs deeply into these biblical poems. And then he told the story of why. When he was 15 years old, he was diagnosed with bone cancer. Both of his legs were amputated, and he underwent more surgeries than you and I could count. And he says in this commentary, it's all about academics, that as a 15-year-old, he was afraid of dying, but he was also terrified of living. What would it be like to live as someone who had had both of his legs amputated? What would life with that kind of disability and those kinds of challenges be like? So no matter what he looked at in his future, it seemed to be the day of trouble. And he says this psalm became his favorite in that season of life, those several years. Not because it denied the fears of life. These are his words. I love this psalm. Not because it denied the fears of life, but because it sketched in an authentic way a picture of the challenges of life. He says it, it's a psalm that speaks words of fear and words of trust, and the two are not as far removed from each other as we often believe. And then he quotes verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom will I fear? We can know this God who overpowers evil through his goodness. We can know this God whose beauty is so radiant that it will outshine all darkness in the end. We can know this God who can give us strength in the day of trouble. How? How can we know this God? Well, he makes himself known. One of the ways he does that is recorded in this psalm. It has to do with the worship of Israel in the tabernacle and later the temple. Verse 4, I want to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. I want to ask questions about truth. I want to ask questions about how to live. I want to go to worship and, and encounter this God who can reorient me and everything about me so that I'm filled with wisdom instead of confusion. I, I want to worship with God's people in his temple and experience that. Um, temple here may be a metaphor for the tabernacle. Um, because the next verse starts to talk about a tent. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. And verse 6 says, I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. God makes himself known to us in that pattern of sacrifice and praise. Sacrifice and praise. Why would, 
Why would knowing God by entering a tabernacle or, or temple later, where once I come into the courts, the first thing that's going to greet me is an altar where animals are sacrificed. And that altar, guys, is not something small. It's, it's not the size of this table. That altar was you know, 12, 15 feet high and, say, 20 feet square. Massive. The first thing you see when you come as one of God's people in the Old Testament to worship Him is this sign greeting you to say, I will accept the life of another to stand in your place on the greatest day of trouble imaginable. The day when I come to you and ask you to make it right for all the evil things you have done. And on that day of trouble, I am willing to let another stand in your place. The reason you and I can stand on every lesser day of trouble as believers in Jesus is because of that reality. God has made himself known in worship by saying he's the kind of God who will let someone else Stand in our place, not on the day of trouble, but on the greatest day of trouble imaginable, a day when every human being will be held accountable, a day of accountability. The traditional Christian language for that is the day of judgment. On that day, Jesus has said, I stand in your place. He's the fulfillment of that gigantic altar that greeted every worshiper in the days of the tabernacle and temple. And then where does that lead? Verse 6 says, you know, I, I will offer in God's tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. I'm going to praise this God. Why? Because he has delivered his people from trouble so many times, so often, that we can look forward with confidence to being able to sing his praise. His past faithfulness and the promise of future help gives us strength to stand in the present day of trouble. The resurrection of Jesus fulfills this pattern of ancient Israel's worship. As Christians, how would we know that God's goodness will triumph over evil in the end? How would we know that His beauty will outshine the darkness? It's because Jesus is no longer crucified, dead, and buried. Our creed says, because history witnessed this reality, that God made himself known not only in the death of Jesus, but in the resurrection of Jesus. Peter and Donna stood side by side to read this psalm to us. You, you heard that they took different roles. One of them reading the sections of the psalm that Rolf Jacobson said were the words of fear, and, and the other reading the words of trust. The moments when the psalmist felt 
uh, most shaken on the day of trouble. And then the words that express this absolute confidence, nothing can shake me. God makes himself known in a world that is full of that tension between the evil and the good, the beautiful and the dark. Why? How? Well, he makes himself known by stepping into this world and enduring all of it. Cross and resurrection, suffering and perfect healing, shame and glory, utter humiliation and rejection, complete exaltation. We can know this God and have confidence on the day of trouble because God has made himself known through his Son, the Son who fulfills all the patterns and shadows and hints and signs of worship. The Son, Jesus. Let's take a minute and give thanks. Our God, we know that um, we all believe that good is better than evil. Even those who would say that there is no good and there is no evil, that the difference can't be known, they don't really believe that because they believe it is good to believe the truth and it is bad or evil to believe what is false. Every human being believes there is distinction between what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is true and what is false. And we believe that because you've made us in your image and because you won't stop pursuing us. But you have come into our world and made yourself known. You've made yourself known by speaking your name to a people whose language was Hebrew. You've made yourself known by commanding your people to build a tabernacle and a temple full of these signs of your love and mercy and power and glory. You've made yourself known by redeeming and delivering your people from slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, from our own guilt and shame through the cross, from the power of death through the resurrection. Thank you for making yourself known as the God who is not a hallucination or a figment of our imagination, but the God who is the goodness that will overpower evil, the God who is the beauty that outshines the darkness. Don't let us rest until we have found our rest in you. Amen.